0: There are movies that change the whole way in which films are made, like Clue, where Gordon Willis's photography on the film is so textured, and they said, too dark. At first, this was alarming to people, because they're used to a certain way things are done within the studio system, and the studio is selling a product, so they were wary of people thinking that it's too dark. Those are words from director Martin Scorsese on Gordon Willis's work in Alan J. Bakula's 1971 film, Clute. Clue. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. I'm your host, Felicia Maroney. A quick synopsis of the film is, A small town detective searching for a missing man has only one lead, a connection with a New York prostitute. Tagline for the film is, One man is missing, two girls lie dead, and someone is breathing on the other end of the phone. The film stars Jane Fonda as Bree Daniels, Donald Sutherland as John Clute, Charles Shiaffi as Peter Cable, Roy Scheider as Frank Leguren, and Dorothy Tristan as Arlen Page. It's written by Andy Lewis and Dave Lewis, cinematography by Gordon Willis, directed by Alan J. Bakula, edited by Carl Lerner, and music by Michael Small. So today my guest is Ryan Ritter. I know I'm from the Royal Film Club. And I know that you have your own blog where you write about film and you also have a podcast that you co-host. So Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, the appreciation is all mine. Uh honor to be here. <laughs> Thanks for having no, me.
0: No, of course. I'd love for you to tell the listeners a little bit about your writing and your blog. And if your cat wants to join too, I'd love, I'd love for them to join. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that's the so cat. That, yeah, oh yeah, uh, that's that's our youngest. We have two cats. I don't know how uh-huh. interesting that is to anybody, but yeah, she doesn't really read my blog too much, but um, <laughs> that's okay. Yeah, um, I'll start with the uh, blog information first because I think that has like a pretty direct correlation to um, the kind of stuff that you do here on your show. Uh, it is mostly a film blog. It's called Critical Analysis. Two things to know about that title: one, critical is spelled with two T's. Mm-hmm. It's a great marketing move to uh, take a word everyone knows how to spell and then change it just a little bit to make it confusing. Yes. So the, the the second T for writ, Ryan Ritter Crit. Yeah, you see how it's clever. Um, yeah. and, th- and the second thing is it can be done as one whole thing, critical analysis, or it can be done with a dash in the middle. Dealer's choice. Uh, once a month, I post a movie related blog. I've done um I've done articles on. Uh, killers of the flower moon there should be one up regarding priscilla sofia coppola's latest and i left myself a little room to do some bonus articles here and there there's some christmas stuff posted a little bit ago so yeah people go check that out criticalanalysis.com yeah. with two t's as you mentioned i also do host a, a podcast it's called pop culture historians it's with my longtime friend of 20 years jimmy mcshane mm. And that's a little bit more uh, populist, a little bit more loose. It's less focused in the blog, kind of by design. But the driving ethos is we like to take our pop culture fixations and take them from the very beginning and kind of go through the history of them. I think the impetus mm, was okay. kind of as a pandemic project. My friend Jimmy is a humongous Doctor Who fan.
2: Mm, okay. A little
1: sci-fi show some people might have heard of. I had never seen an episode. So he's like, I found the perfect end. I'm going to take you through the history of it. And kind of get a novice's point of view and an expert's point of view. and We've extended that out to like movies. Uh, we've done a little Halloween uh, series not too long ago. Going to the Universal Monster movies, and for those out there who uh, are into superhero movies, still we're going to the history of those, going all the way nice. back to like 30s, 40s, and 50s, the old serials, and going through weird stuff like West Grade and Swamp Thing. Yeah, so the, just be a little bit of something for everybody um, is the goal. Yeah, check it out. We're on. Uh, spotify and apple podcasts so we'd yeah. love to have come join us
0: <laughs> yeah please. i'll i'll have all both those things in the show notes for people to check out and and link to i know that you on the podcast did recently an episode on batman and robin yes yes indeed. And <laughs> i get a lot of hate only because people think i'm joking but i'm very serious when i say it's my favorite batman movie i think it's fun you
1: know if i had known that we, i would have come snagged you to um <laughs> Talk a little bit about it. Um, yeah, no, it's an interesting episode. Those Batman episodes tend to uh go pretty long because there's lots to talk about. And uh yeah, we were kind of mixed. We kind of sat there and go, is it good? Is it bad? I couldn't come to a decision still. Yeah, because it but what's beautiful about it is also what's weird about it, and then vice versa. They will never make a Batman movie like it ever again. I will tell you that. No way, no, <laughs> no not <laughs> not no how, not no way. Yeah, no, that was a fun episode to put together. Um, for sure. And uh, you mentioned the Royal Film Club, um, mm-hmm. our very first episode post credit scene. We got a little um, quick capsule review from the uh, head of the and founder of their Royal Film Club, Greg Kleinschmidt. So it should be a little treat for people at the end of that episode as
0: well. Shout out, Greg.
1: He's a great guest and a great guy.
0: He really is. <laughs> <laughs> Do you kind of remember when it was that you started to watch films more so as like I want to actively seek out certain films as opposed to just renting the movie of the week.
1: It's an excellent question and uh, one I think about a lot because I grew up Mm -hmm. around movies. I had a lot of different sources. My two main when I was a kid were my grandparents and my mother. Uh, My grandparents were European immigrants and they spoke excellent English, better English than I can now, to be honest. But their interest because of that, because of the kind of language barrier, they kind of... Uh, zeroed in on a lot of comedies from the 30s 40s and 50s uh, kind of vaudeville kind of stuff so there was a lot of um you know, there's like Three Stooges, which are kind of more short based, but there's also like Laurel and Hardy and um, mm-hmm. Marx Brothers, which is also more wordplay and stuff. But um, that's how I got access and uh, exposure to a lot of those great comedies, the Leo McCarey kind of movies from the kind yeah. beginnings of uh, old Hollywood. And then my mom was the one that introduced me to like Spielberg and Lucas and all those all those great movies that, of course, everyone loves. Everyone who's into film started mm-hmm. there, probably at least in our uh, age demographic. But also like. Literary and like Shakespearean adaptations. She showed me a lot of like Richard Burton kind of uh, type stuff. And uh, that's where I thought like the Zeffirelli, Romeo, and Juliet. That was because of my mom. And then I had mentors. I used to perform uh, at a different time in my life. And I had kind of a mentor through performance who showed me a lot of like the MGM movies and like musicals Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. But my actual moment of when, when am I going to start like really digging in and like catching all these movies. I haven't seen a lot of these hits because I didn't spend a lot of my 20s like seeking out this stuff. I don't know where my curiosity mm-hmm. went. But I found it again. I turned 30 or 31, whichever year uh, the Criterion channel released because I had missed okay, yeah. Filmstruck. I don't know if anyone remembers Filmstruck. I missed that entirely. And when it shut down, I was like, man, I really feel like I blew it. This is, you know, readily accessible film library of all the best movies ever made from around the world. And I I didn't take advantage of it. And then the Criterion channel showed up and I'm like, I'm not letting it pass me by again. And then there was a little something called the pandemic. And that gave me a lot of time. And that's when the journey kind of really began in earnest for me. so, and I'm glad I did because if this podcast existed five years ago, we would not be talking about the movie that we're talking about today because I wouldn't have seen it. It would not have been something that I would have sought out. So... I come to you today not as a uh, film expert of any sort, but as an eternal student, and I hope to maintain that forever. Hey,
0: so am I. That's I feel like that's the best mindset. Like, doesn't matter if you went to school or not; you should still be a student. I consider myself still a student.
1: That's the way to live life. You never wanna, you never wanna stop learning.
0: No. Today we're talking about Clute, Alan J. Pakula. So you mentioned you've seen this before, watching, you know, for the podcast. Do you recall? kind of your initial thoughts on when you first watched it had you heard of it before was it kind of like a a murmur of a film that you kind of knew was important and what made you you know seek it out
1: yeah that's actually a great kind of transition question because i can kind of pick back up on that 2020 year when i'm like i'm gonna do it i'm gonna start watching these things that's this was a pandemic watch for me and it was a Mm -hmm. criterion watch i don't remember what the actual because you know for people who I'm sure everyone within this is familiar with the channel, but they tend to kind of release things and like kind of fun themes and interesting themes and yeah. kind of unintuitive themes. And I don't remember if this was like a starring Jane Fonda kind of collection or maybe like a seventies paranoia thrill. Mm-hmm. Don't know. Don't remember. All I knew was that it was on the channel. And one, a lot of the people I followed on Twitter who were like in the film circles were like, Oh my God, Clute's on the channel. And two, it yeah. was leaving the channel really soon. I really rode that leaving the channel this month. Um, menu <laughs> a lot, especially like that summer. So I'm like, gotta see it. Don't so no know when it's gonna pop up again. I checked out Clute kind of blind. I hadn't even heard of it, to be honest, and um, watched it, liked it a lot. Wasn't what I was expecting, yeah. you know. And then we can kind of get into that a little bit. Um, I was expecting, you know, it's part of the paranoia trilogy, right? Alan Pacula's um, paranoia trilogy. And I was expecting something kind of along the lines of like all the presidents, men, and it really is not that. And um, so I ended up really liking it but I had to stop in the back of my mind. Like I bet when I revisit this now that I'm kind of calibrated this to what it is and what it's trying to do, I bet I'm going to love it. And then I guess this is where we find out if that panned yeah. out or not. <laughs> I guess you'll just have to keep listening for a couple minutes out there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's my, that was my, that was my initial uh, mm. run in with Clute, the movie as opposed to the character.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's fair. I mean, I feel like my mind is fairly similar to, well, two things. One I also still to this day, I have like a very, I don't even want to get into because it's going to make me seem like a real loser, but I have like a oh, specific, let's do it. like schedule for my movie watching for the month. It's really bad. But part of that schedule is going through and like the first of the month, I'll look through what's leaving Criterion. and I'll make the list of everything I want to watch. There's usually like 20 movies. I'm like, I'm very serious about it. The first day of the week, month, I'm like gotta check i gotta make that list and i gotta finish it honestly <laughs> i can't even do, I, but...
1: I, I, I can't even make fun of that and that, no one out there should because i wish i that's the kind of i wish i was that organized let me put it that way um i, I really The only do. thing i'm
0: organized about in my life it's it's weird because like i'll have that and then i have every month i have a themed month that i do so december is usually westerns month so i make a huge <laughs> spreadsheet of movies that i need to get through so i'll do that and then i also have the podcast movies and i'm also part of like three film clubs it's actually really bad and everyone's like how do you have time and i'm like i work from home is that but outside yeah. of that now that i've told everyone
1: this is this is a this is a safe space it's okay yeah We're no judgment-free <laughs> zone
0: but clute eventually at some point i think i also watched the first time It must have been during the pandemic, and I must have watched it when I was on the Criterion channel. And I think it was part of like a paranoia thriller thing, because I think it was the up there with Parallax View. So I would have (laughs) seen it at the same time. It also wasn't what I was expecting. I don't know what I thought it was going to be, but it wasn't what I was expecting. And that doesn't mean I didn't like it. I did like it, but I also was like, I think on a rewatch, I'll love it. So... I guess you'll also find out, listener, if we both liked it more or less. Because sometimes that happens. So
1: sure, should we rip off the band aid and find yeah. out? Yeah, I mean, yeah. It, the second, the second watch for the show really unlocked it for me, and I was really yeah. able to. Sometimes with kind of unintuitive movies and movies that are made kind of unintuitively, and I would argue that this is a movie that is made kind of unintuitively. Once you're kind of calibrated to what it isn't, the second time you can enjoy it for what it is. And what it is yeah. really is this very, like, sensual, to put it very lightly, um, character mm-hmm. study. I mean, it, that's a term that gets thrown around a lot. And I think sometimes with a little basis, but this really is a character study. It's about these two, arguably three, even more arguably one, really interesting character uh, put in this very, very kind of dark, grimy story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and being able to enjoy it for that, and especially looking at it through the lens of cinematography which I don't often do this is gonna be an interesting little challenge because again coming from a performance background yeah. I, I tend to I tend to latch on like acting first and then with like the writing for the blog I do a lot of director-based things and so I kind of like so this is gonna be an interesting mm-hmm. challenge and thankfully there's lots to talk about yeah in terms of cinematography
0: oh yeah for sure I mean I feel exactly the same way like it definitely is exactly what you said once you know what the film has to offer then you can fully focus on what it is offering you as opposed to trying to figure out what's happening and where it's going because I, I think with some films that have like this big reveal at the end even though it's, i don't find the reveal super huge we just we know it's gonna happen it's not like it's a twist or anything we know something's gonna happen so that caused you know let's be rewatchable but i think that i just was able to actually appreciate with everything that was happening and i was also looking at watching it through the lens of, like, you know, Gordon Wilson's work. We added just that extra layer of enjoyment for me. So if you're ready to get into Clue, I am.
1: Let's do it.
0: One of the first things I wanted to talk about was, you know, the the framing in this film. I think the framing is really beautiful and the way people are framed in this film, specifically Brie, who is Jane Fonda's character. So I noticed on this watch oftentimes that we're kind of observing her, the camera's placed in the situation where we're observing her in a way that's not just the camera there in her setting. It's clearly watching her because we're supposed to be watching her. So we're seeing her often through windows, seeing her through the like door frames, through mirrors. And we're watching her the way she's being watched by someone like Clute or our unseen killer at this point. How do you feel about the fact that this is a, a thriller of some sort. There's a spy element and trying to figure out what's going on. She's a call girl. We're put in this position of sort of a Peeping Tom esque position. How do you feel that the ca- camera translates in this situation here? Yeah,
1: I noticed the same thing that you did. And there's a couple different shots in particular that um, really stood out to me as far as kind of like framing and telling the story through how we see Brie. There was that one I think you were alluding to. And um, I'm not always great with character names. I don't remember who she's, who Bree is talking to, but it, it's from Clute's point of view. And we're getting this, in, we're getting this basically like a monologue scene. Bree is talking to one of her clients and kind of telling this, mm-hmm. this story. And I won't say a lesser movie; I say a different movie would do it. Kind of, you know, slow zoom in on her face, um, maybe a couple of reaction shots here and there, but to kind of drive the power and the tension from that. And all done instead here in Clute, it's done. But basically, like, it's in darkness. Her back is to the camera. She's far away. And I think that's where a lot of the um, tension of the movie is drawn from as well, is this kind of, like, off-kilter. We're seeing people in ways that we're not used to seeing them in movies. Yeah. And I think that's really bold. I think a lot of that comes from cinematography. And I will say, too, this will come up somewhere in here as well. I don't know. But, like, it's shot in darkness, I should say. You can still see what's happening. What an amazing thing in this world of a kind of we're kind of in a sludgy time for movies yeah. that are shot in darkness and you can see everything that's going on. And then the second shot, a scene between Clute and Brie. And just from the way Clute is standing, he's taken up like two thirds of the screen and Bree is kind of shoved, you know, she's sitting on a bed or lying on a bed or whatever, but she's kind of forced into like this uh, right third of the screen. So she feels very cramped, even though mm-hmm. in reality, if you were just be on the set that day. There's probably lots of space between them. But just because they placed the camera just so and Gordon Wills played it just so, you feel really, really it's a claustrophobic movie, even though there's a lot of open spaces. A lot of it plays out in like pretty big rooms or giant <laughs> um, you know, factory floors. It's still you just feel very cramped and it's it's storytelling through <laughs> through visual that's that's movies you know
0: exactly that that shot is interesting too because i was reading about it he was being interviewed and they asked him specifically about that shot you know why is donald sutherland's back taking so much of that frame it's because they really wanted to make brie look very small and smothered because she is being smothered throughout this and she wants to appear free and like she's in control but she's very much not only because there's no way to be in control in a situation that dangerous so they're always just trying to smother her and make her smaller and not in like a demeaning way but just to be like this woman is in danger and she's not fully taking it not maybe not taking it seriously but maybe unaware of how dangerous it actually is so it's a great shot it's like with Mm -hmm. just like a frame like that to see Something so beautifully done, like that's the story in itself, that shot. Um yeah. what I've noticed with watching quite a few of his films and re-watching, and specifically with this one, I find that there's a lot of space given to the actors. And and what I mean by that is that allowed to take up as much as of the frame as possible. And he does that by honestly keeping the camera very still. And sometimes you just place there. In a way, it's framed perfectly because it gives you just what you need to see, but it's allowing uh, actors to walk in and out of the frame as they need to, because a lot of times we don't need to see someone, right? A lot of times she's talking to her therapist. We're just looking at her talking. We don't see the therapist. And I think without you know giving those reaction shots, moving the camera too much, it builds a sense of dread because we're not sure how serious this is until the story keeps progressing how do you feel about you know how kind of still the camera is and like there really is no flashy camera movements at all in this movie
1: yeah no i as i was kind of thinking about the question as you're asking it, and also kind of thinking about again this this pair of shots we were just talking about what's beautiful about it is that they don't really draw a whole lot of attention to themselves right and again there's lots of different ways to make a movie lots of different ways to tell a story and uh you to say what's right or wrong but i do think sometimes especially with like thrillers or like kind of building tension there's kind of i think sometimes there's like a too much of an emphasis on like showing the style a little bit and showing you yeah. know or even just in movie making in general i think kind of uh, in the world of like screen caps and being able to kind of show off beautiful little still images i think sometimes there's a over obsession with like making things symmetrical or fitting in as much of detail mm-hmm. as possible all that stuff is great but there's something about kind of realizing as something's happening, like, oh my gosh, that was this is an amazing shot. I it's been going for two minutes, or it just kind of passed me by and I just I'm just now having a chance to reflect on it. Mm-hmm. There's a simplicity to Gordon Willis's work here. And um, it doesn't draw attention to itself. And I think that's where the power comes from. You mentioned the therapy uh scenes, mm-hmm. which are interesting because I think Brie, and it's this is more on the performance and writing side of things. I think Bree's such an interesting character because she has two types of scenes, right? Either she's not saying something, and we're kind of having to surmise how she feels through like action and like subtext. And then she gets like literal like just text scenes where she's saying literally how she feels to yeah. uh, someone off screen. A lot of meaty stuff there. I think those therapy scenes again because there's such a lack of flashy style, it is just a still camera. Like every once in a while they'll cut like therapist, maybe once, maybe twice, and it's almost like shocking. Mm-hmm. Like you forget there's someone else in the room. Yeah, <laughs> it really allows the performance to build. I think not like kind of think about it. it's kind of like how dancing the musicals used to be where it used to be kind of like longer shots and you get to actually like, see the dancers move and like choreography develop and like maybe like you know motion really get to uh, appear on screen and now sometimes i think there's an to kind of this almost sounds like an old man thing because it's 40 years old like the mtv i <laughs> mtvization mm-hmm. of you know well, i'm trying to say like music video kind of mentality where it's like fast shot fast shot fast shot these long, like two minutes, I mean, I don't know if they were two minutes, they kind of feel like they could have been a minute or two of just Brie talking and Jane Fonda yeah. talking and about simple thought. I mean, they're simple, but they're meaty thoughts. It really allows her to shine, Jane Fonda, and it makes the movie really, really come alive. And I don't know that everyone would have to, I hate to say courage, that seems like an overreaction, but there's nowhere to hide. The movie doesn't give itself anywhere to hide on these things. I think that's, it's, it's really cool. It's not the kind of thing I would have noticed the first time.
0: No, I mean, I agree. I think... That certain films call for flashier shots. This one doesn't. And with Gordon Willis's work, he is very in tune to the story and who he's working with. I was reading an interview with him in terms of actors because he originally wanted to be an actor and decided that wasn't for him. And, you know, ended up being a cinematographer for the best, probably. I mean, maybe he was a good actor but i was gonna
1: say what a what a transition it's usually like direction or writing no cinematography as far away from the front of the camera as possible
0: (laughs) (laughs) but he said with that background it gave him a sense of empathy for the Actors and what they have to offer when they're on set. So a lot of the times he's really using his camera in service of their performances, um, as opposed to being like, I need to stand out. But in that way, it still stands out what he's doing because if it was flashier or if he's trying to do too much, it would take away from everything. So it just allows people to everyone to do what they, you know, are there to do. And it's different in every every film that he's worked on, because the reason why I wanted to do Gordon Willis is because when I think of 70s American cinema, I always think of Gordon Willis because he did so many of the great ones, you know, actually, oddly enough, not even covering The Godfather on this series, even though that's, you know, that's a huge one. I think it's because it's a huge one. It was tempting. I was like, no, I'm not the guy to do it. I'm yeah, I think that's, yeah. I think that's exactly what a lot of people thought. And that's totally fair because I also am like, am I ready to tackle the Godfather? But I kind of think it's great to tackle the stuff that's not the huge film so that you can see what he has to offer outside of that because everything I've covered so far is different, but he still has that style that runs through. You mentioned the darkness. In this film. So, his nickname, I don't know if you know this, but he's nicknamed the Prince of Darkness, which I love. You can see that.
1: That's fantastic.
0: (laughs) I was like, that's a great name. And he got it. He got it really because of his work on The Godfather, but you see it here. You see it in All the President's Men, too. There's a famous scene in the underground car park with Deep Throat, but you see it a lot here. And as you said, scenes can be fully dark. But you still see what's happening. And that's skill to be able to figure out where the light is. So I don't know if you want to talk about just how you feel in terms of this film and just watching other films or other types of media. I see it a lot in modern television where things will be dark and you're like, I cannot see, but I know that's not what you meant to do. (laughs) So. How do you feel about how he is able to do it in this film
1: yeah i think sometimes we see trends happen for so long and so often that you kind of start thinking maybe it's a you problem like it's eh, maybe i'm getting older maybe my tv's kind of wearing out yeah. right? and then you <laughs> watch something like flute and you're like no no it's everyone yeah. else that's wrong it's it's this that's right like no, you're never lost. Because again, it's there's a couple scenes here and there, like a New York street. It's usually when they're like walking into a building or like walking out of a building. Like That's it. A lot of this stuff is done pretty clandestine. Not like you always see something. You can always kind of catch where the light is coming from. Like there's a great mm-hmm. theme, great little just detail early on um, where she's with one of her um, clients. It's the one that ends mm-hmm. with her <laughs> checking her watch while they're... Um, <laughs> yeah. Mid coitus, which is a great little character detail, but they're on this couch and you know, he's he's kind of I don't remember, she's trying to flirt or he's trying to flirt, I don't really remember, but um, one lamp on one end is off and one lamp where the characters are is on, and it's like, boom, perfect, I know exactly where I am, it makes perfect sense. And you know, it's not like it's very linden where it's all shot via candlelight Mm -hmm. and stuff. I mean, it's like you know, they set it up traditionally, but it's a great, it's a great magic trick. I legitimately, I mean, I don't have the know how to even begin to figure out how it was done but i feel like even if i did i'd still be sitting there going like how did he do it how did the yeah. prince of darkness do it <laughs> but it's great and so in service of the story which we've been talking around we've been talking about the story here and there it's remarkable mm-hmm. how small scale and how like relatively low stakes the story is compared to like other paranoia thrillers, especially like the parallax view where it's like, Oh yeah. There's a shadow organization that's gonna just that runs everything or like all the president's men where it's like, it's coming the calls coming from within the house. Like yeah. this is just like some scudgy guy was embarrassed about, was ashamed about being caught with like a Carl girl and he went crazy. And it's so, it's so low stakes, but it feels deadly serious as you mentioned. And you're like mm-hmm. Free, you're you're really playing with fire here. And, um, Again, I think a lot of that is because it's done in shadows. You don't get really good looks at people um, for the most part. And there's also like this, uh, jumping to the performance of it, it's great. It's interesting how much uh, Jane Fonda pops a little bit on the screen. Uh, Again, the camera being in service of that. But the camera's also in service of Donald Sutherland, whose performance, I think it's a little slept on here because it's not showy. I think he has a trickier job because he has to be repressed, uh, stone-faced, out of his Mm -hmm. element. And I think the camera serves that, too. Um, He's often at kind of awkward angles and POV shots. And I know that I think Donald Sutherland had issues doing this movie. I don't know if that is accurate. I think that's the impression I get. I don't know if he had a great time doing it. But um, he comes off great in this, if that's the case. And if it's not, we can just snip that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I've, I've heard different things about it. Because I also thought that he didn't love it, but then I read a post that I was like, maybe at the time he didn't, but in retrospect, he's come around on it. Because I've read different things. It's possible, but definitely. I mean, I love Donald Sutherland. He's a fellow Canadian, but he looks especially gangly in this one. But I think it's because that character is supposed to be, you know, small town good boy detective Mm -hmm. is afraid of the big city. You mentioned a great scene with uh, the lamp and using that lighting. What I noticed a lot is the use of natural light in this film. And specifically, I mean, there's a lot of outdoor scenes, you know, New York street scenes. Um, you also get a few club scenes. That's probably not natural light in those, but in Bree's apartment and even in like Clute's little hut apartment that he's living in i don't know what that is uh it looks very dingy one room but there's two things i want to talk about very quickly uh i want to talk about the location of breeze apartment which is like above a funeral home
1: it's so great it's so great
0: the rent must have been dirt cheap
1: oh especially in 1971 yeah
0: honestly i'd do it to live in new york city i'd be like oh i'll live above a funeral home i don't care it's
1: it's not a bad place it's a great no it's a it's a great flat yeah
0: yeah she lives by herself so hey it's a lot most people can't say that in new york but two when we get the scenes of her alone in her apartment or even when clue is over a lot of it is lit just by the lighting in her actual apartment so sometimes it's a candle because so that's like a wall lamp or the lamp in her bathroom. And it just makes this, the space seem very lived in. But she's still kind of enveloped in black most of the time. So I'm going to read a quick quote. It's a little bit long. I'm going to try and condense and read it as quickly as possible. But August. it's by Mark Harris, who wrote uh, an essay on the Criterion about Gordon Willis's photography of that scene her apartment so he says enveloping brie in a blackness that always seemed on the verge of devouring her completely willis makes her the constant center of our attention by implicitly threatening to obliter- obliterate her in an early scene in which brie opens up to Clute a better past willis fills the frame with cludes back which we talked about a massive undifferentiated black that turns brie into a small light in danger of being snuffed out by everything around her Willis could transform Bree's apartment from a comfortable place to nestle at night into a war in ominous shadows, which I agree with. Couldn't have said it better. Yeah, I was like, I gotta read this because he said it a lot better than <laughs> I could have said it. But I agree, because as we were literally just saying, it looks like a nice place, but you're also like, um, there's a lot of danger within that place because of what's kind of enveloping her in a sense. Even like something like I can't believe that that apartment has like a sunroof, but the sunroof is also terrifying. (laughs) Sure. How do you feel about that location and the way it's shot? Yeah. I
1: mean, just kind of hearing you talk about it and hearing that quote, uh, it kind of struck me, but the lights on, let's say this whole thing was shot, not in darkness. A lot of these locations are pretty normal. Mm -hmm. An office. Again, we kind of mentioned like a factory floor, I think. And her, and her apartment is pretty nondescript, at least as far as like, movie sets go. I think it it looks like a nice place, but not exactly full to the brim of like details and props and tangible things. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: But given kind of the unknown nature of the threat and the fact that it doesn't seem like it's something that's kind of on its way to getting solved at all, really. Yeah, all of a sudden, ordinary things become really sinister. And I didn't even think about the sunroof, but you're right. I mean, that's a vulnerability, especially when she's kind (laughs) of on her own. Uh, It's not really at all clear what kind of protection Clute's going to be able to do. He can barely be in the city at all. Uh, he clams up. He doesn't talk a whole lot. Bree's kind of on her own for most of this. And yeah, I I, I just think there's something really powerful about a movie that could make really normal, ordinary things be terrifying.
0: I agree. There's something you said actually about the fact that this is probably a very normal apartment, but the way it's shot for most of the film makes it seem more ominous. And I 100% agree because the final shot is her moving out of the apartment and it's daylight and it just looks so basic.
1: Yeah, there's nothing to it. I mean, no. she's probably able to move in like a day.
0: <laughs> yeah. Uh. I was like, how did you fit all of that in those bags? Where's the rest of stuff? That, uh, that was just me being like, you know hating moving but i mean yeah, I it's still a, it's, there. it's basic yeah. but it looks like i'd still accept the apartment absolutely whatever uh,
1: absolutely you'd hate to there's not a game anyone should play but i wonder what the rent would be now oh something obscene God. yeah follow y'all five know. now and stuff yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah it's probably like
0: five people living in that. exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah don't don't no one look it up on zillow or anything it'll just be no. depressing. yeah don't do it
0: another thing i want to talk about So a lot of the scenes is because this film is a lot of, it's like a dialogue based. It looks like a lot of dialogue, a lot of people talking. There's one scene that stood out to me on this watch. I don't even know if I fully remembered it from the last watch I had, but it really stood out. Now one scene where there's not really much dialogue. There's a bit of background dialogue, but it's when Clute and Bree are at this point, they've slept together. They're being very flirtatious going out. They're at the fruit market. They're buying fruits and just the performances between them is just so great. And just the way the camera follows them. In like that very flirtatious way, I find it's like kind of flirting with them too. I just found it so sweet, and it's weird that I didn't remember it because it really is one of my favorite scenes in this movie. Of just when she kind of you know grabs the back of his the shirt, then you can see how happy they are in that moment. They're being shy with each other. I just love it. I love that scene.
1: It's a one. It's a wonderful scene. I love that you described it as like the camera kind of flirting along with them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have much to say about that. I think you put it. Beautifully. But I think something that I did kind of notice right off the bat with this movie that is kind of like the other side of the coin of flirtation game del- delirium What do you think yeah. about the title sequence with the uh with the you know with the cassette tape and the camera is kind of almost mm-hmm. ogling the tape recorder in this kind of sinister way? And again, nondescript tape recorder, some yep. junk junk technology from the early 70s, but it's almost like the camera's ogling it and yeah, it's just an object, but for some reason it just it gave me the creeps this time around. And um I think it can kind of show the subtleties. The camera is a performer in this movie. Yeah. And there's a lot of subtleties in its performance. And um it shows a sophistication that I don't know that I see a lot from other VPs. I mean, I think that's mm-hmm. a, I think that's it's safe to say. But yeah, it's interesting that you kind of brought up like the other side of that coin where it can be very loving and really show these two people. And it's kind of at a, a, a crossroads for those two characters Mm -hmm. this is a possible future and a possible ending and the camera really sells it it's it's a rare moment of lightness in a very kind of dark and kind of cynical movie yeah it's great
0: i agree there's two things i guess because uh gordon willis shot a lot of woody allen films and that scene i think reminded me a lot of the way he shoots woody allen's romance comedy sure. films where
1: absolutely those
0: scenes where they're not heavy dialogue you know you get those scenes in annie hall in manhattan with just the two you know lovers getting to know each other and you see them falling more in love and that i think that's his style with that so i think that's probably also why i love that scene it just it's A lightness to a heavy story it's not super heavy but it's heavy enough that you kind of need that bit of relief and it's it's a break (laughs) yeah okay i can break i can relax for a second yeah i
1: can yeah i can i can i can let go of the breath i've been holding in for 20 minutes
0: exactly uh but the title sequence i also felt creeped out by this time the first time i watched it i think because of the way it's shot it's kind of in darkness and you're just You know, looking at that tape recorder, I thought it was like, oh, this is going to be kind of a Hitchcock style movie, murder by numbers thing. And it Mm -hmm. is ish, but because it's the seventies, they're always still, you know, defying the set norms by old Hollywood. Yeah. This time I definitely was like, oh, okay. Now I know what that recorder means because the first time you watch it, you don't know what that is. You probably are like, okay, this is a detective. So it's the detective is going to be, you know, using this in some sort of way, once you've realized, oh, what it's used for, you're like, oh, it's a lot darker.
1: It's very dark, yeah.
0: It's great. We don't have great title sequences anymore. No, probably. it's a shame. It's gone in
1: both movies and television. And it's yeah. it's it's a crying shame because you it, it sets the mood so well. I mean, you can just use this movie as an example, but you could take any movie from its era or before or even a little bit after. Mm-hmm. I think even like 80s and 90s. Uh, getting into the 90s, the title sequence is kind of going away a little bit outside of yeah. maybe like Scorsese movies, like this casino, yeah. right? But it just sets the mood so well. You're like, you're immediately, and it's funny too, because the, the scene before it is like this kind of nondescript, kind of family dinner scene. And you kind of mm-hmm. see food, but kind of pretty incidentally, there's no real indication outside of it's Donald Sutherland that he's like the, the title mm-hmm. character. Yeah. And then boom, you're right in the darkness. You've got this like, Creepy tape recorder. You got this creepy music playing that sounds like literally like a uh, chill going up your spine. All of a sudden, you're just like, "Whoa!" You're plunging me right into the deep end here. Mm-hmm. It's wonderful, and I think movies ought to think about introducing those again because they are gone for the most part. I
0: know. Hey, I'm all for a good credit sequence. Yeah. Like I don't need it to be all like some movies call for just you know black titles or having it run over the scene, but I'm like take time to set up the movie. Like we're yeah, I'm already sitting here. So. There's
1: no modern Saul bass, you know? There's no like yeah.
0: <laughs> for real. Yeah. Oh my it's, god.
1: It, it's a shame.
0: Yeah. We need it. Okay. If we're talking about story-wise, we've hinted at, or we've talked about the fact that there is a killer that their clue is searching for. He's using Brie to find this killer. Uh they're working together, I should say, as opposed to using. Yeah. So we've got we get to the final sequence essentially of her in the like a clothing making factory something uh like that. yeah something like that i that's when i i for sure remember that that sequence for the first time it just been like kate okay, mm. when she stays behind to leave mr goldfarb a, a letter or a note that kate okay, she's about to go down that scene where you just see his face hiding within the stuff i was terrified And it's like, it flashes pretty quickly and you're like, wait a minute. And then you go back to Brie for a while and then it flashes back. And I'm like, I am like white knuckling it at this point. I'm like, I'm terrified for her. What's going to happen? Before we get into their discussion, because they do actually sit down and talk, if you want to call it talking. How did you feel about his introduction?
1: I mean, again, just that um that shot that you mentioned. I mean, as you're mentioning, I started kind of jumping up and down. And I was like, oh my god, that's right. Yeah. It creeped me out too. I think what was really interesting about it, and it's a small choice. And again, it's kind of the use of the space and it's the camera coming through once again here. It's not so much that he's hiding behind these garments, because like, you know, he could have been mm-hmm. hiding in the dark would have made sense he could have been hiding like behind you know one of these like kind of clothing fabrics no specifically it's through a garment bag so he almost has yeah. like this like filter over him that little detail turned the creepiness up to like yeah a 100 off the charts and again a brief flash almost like you almost like you dreamed it mm-hmm. there was sort kind of like a dream like quality to this movie i don't know if we've gotten into that at all sometimes this movie feels like kind of like a nightmare and i think mm-hmm. that's a very good example of that you're just like whoa what was that face? And he, he has such a great face too for yeah killer killer reveal, I should say. It was Charles <laughs> Chaffee, right? Yeah, it is. And again, it's the it's the camera telling the story and heightening the tension once again. Mm-hmm. So that's that's all Gordon Willis right there. Well,
0: oh, exactly that. And if we now move on to he's revealing everything that he's done. And as you mentioned before, essentially he had a beating with a call girl, a colleague of Breeze and it went down very badly because he was caught by a, a colleague of his with her and he was embarrassed and took his anger out on her. Peter Cable's telling her about what he's done. And another thing you mentioned earlier was sometimes the camera just focuses on Jane Fonda or other actors, but Jane Fonda in this scene and allows her to do her thing because she barely speaks in this scene. One, she's terrified, she's also listening to a recording. The recording is played in the background and we kind of get flashes of both of their faces what i notice a lot in this is that his face is lit it's half lit so you kind of get this 2 face thing going on that really makes him more sinister if you weren't scared of him you know hiding behind the <laughs> you definitely <laughs> it's a normal are now. thing to do I'm with him
1: so <laughs> far yeah <laughs>
0: Um, yeah, if you're, if that's like a thing or a daily thing and you're like, yeah, he seems like a normal guy at this point, I hope that you don't longer feel that way, but they're both just sitting there listening to this recording that's another thing of like that probably wouldn't get done in a lot of modern movies of letting a recording play for that long while the actors are just sitting there kind of reacting to it so i love that but in terms of the way it's shot and performance of just zeroing in on bond's face and not super super close but close enough that you literally see the snot coming out of her nose is just beyond phenomenal so, how do you feel about this this final sequence?
1: Yeah, she really earned her Oscar there. Yeah. D- d- man, again, again, shot immaculately and shot with a lot of courage gives him nowhere to hide. If the shot doesn't work, the finale collapses and then
2: mm-hmm. the movie
1: sucks. I mean, I, I hate to put it in such stark terms, but that is that is kind of what that stake here, right? But they they trust they trust their abilities, they trust their performers. They trust Themselves to be able to kind of naturally ratchet up that tension until you know Clute mm-hmm. does show up at the last second and then Cable kind of jumps out the window, which is such an insane thing to do. I really love that. um There's no music playing either. I mean, we mentioned kind of like this kind of chilling, kind of spine, literally spine tingling music is what it sounds like, and it's it's not none of that here. It's a recording. Mm-hmm. And it's a shot of the two actors' faces, and that's it. They've really given themselves no wiggle room.
2: Yeah,
1: and it's so thrilling. <laughs> it really is there's no there's no real way to edit themselves out of it if it goes wrong and thankfully they have two performers who are up to the task and Mm -hmm. you know she's doing a lot by not doing a little and he's doing nothing at all i didn't even think about the uh half lit 2 face quality that's so perfect that's so Mm
2: -hmm.
1: that's so established who he is it's so in line with what we know about him and it's so in line with what he's saying and like what his plot is here (laughs) yeah I don't know if I've already said this, but um it struck me watching this that there are no elements of the production that's in conflict with each other. And that is very, very rare. Even with like yeah. the best movie, there's like a thing of like, ah, the wardrobe got probably mm-hmm. like the hair is a little out of place, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> Everything, everyone is kind of doing their thing, but also in tandem with everyone else. Like the performances are kind of right in line with what the direction is trying to go for the director and the um, cinematographer are perfectly in sync. And it goes on and on and on like that. So even if this is like not someone's cup of tea as far as a movie goes, I can understand that. It is it, again, yeah. it is unintuitive. I don't know that anyone could deny it wasn't immaculately made and immaculately shot. That would be that would be a shocking opinion if I heard yeah. someone say that.
0: I mean, yeah, that's the nicest way of putting that. Really- <laughs> I suppose they're I suppose they're out there, but I, I suppose sure you
1: know, they are. There's an opinion. There's for always one, but. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah but yeah it's, it would be it. hard to deny how beautifully shot it is speaking of is before we get into performances because i do want to talk we have talked a bit but I, I do want to actually talk about a bit more of the performances specifically one person we haven't mentioned at all and this but before we get into that is there any other visual themes or visual cues or stylistic choices that we haven't chatted about that you want to Talk about before we move on.
1: There was one thing, and I don't remember if you might have alluded to it earlier. And this might Mm. assist the other person. This might help assist us into this other performer we may not have talked about yet. The scene where Brie runs back to Frank in the club, uh, played by Roy Scheider, who is in (laughs) primo creepo mode. We've been talking about how much this film is shot in darkness, and that is one of the first things I think of. That doesn't have it's it's using color, and it's like this deep nasty red. And um, mm-hmm. it's her running back to the devil and sitting at his right hand side on his throne. It's a descent into hell, and like all of a sudden, the movies going like we're not doing the shadows things anymore. We're playing with color. I don't remember this from the first viewing. This is like mm-hmm. kind of like a brand new scene to me, and it was like this gut punch. <laughs> like I just felt so in despair. It's because all of a sudden, boom, we're using color now, and it's like this really yeah. again na- nasty shade of it's almost like maroon or like wine colored, and it's it's shocking and um just i i can just i'm just be repeating myself over and over how many times can i say how brilliant it is it is it's no, brilliant
0: <laughs> it is i'm glad that you mentioned that it had come up in my mind but i was like i couldn't find an avenue to get to it so i'm glad you brought to brought it up i 100% agree with that I, it, that's another one that stands out because there's so much color but the color is kind of ugly and bit muted and yet it's still bright In contrast to the rest of the film, and it is essentially, I hadn't even thought about it like that. It's her running back to the devil, you know, and his like lavishness, but it's not Mm -hmm. even lavishness. It's just kind of like.
1: Because it's like a party going on, but it's not like a fun party. It's just kind of like this nasty club. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's exactly that. It's like this weird, yeah, you know, red maroon kind of dried blood look.
1: Dried <laughs> blood. It. That's perfect. That's perfect. That's, yes, yeah. that's exactly what it is.
0: And it perfectly describes what that character has to offer in this film. And it does, you know, is it is a great segue into talking to, about the performances because we hadn't mentioned Roy Scheider for anyone. If you are listening to this for some reason you haven't seen it, yes, Roy Scheider's in this movie. This is
1: what else do you need to know? Huh.
0: Yeah. I think he is credited as Roy R. Scheider in this.
1: Ooh, you might be right before
0: he dropped the R. <laughs> so <laughs> this is pre, you know, what he was became famous for, which would have been jazz and
1: Yeah. All that jazz, so on, I guess, came after that. All that right. jazz.
0: So But then us watching it, we're like, oh, it's Roy Scheider. You expect him to be in a bigger role, but he's not. And He does, but he does a great job in this film. And he's great and he's sinister. And if you've seen all that jazz, you're like, yeah, he can play scuzzy too.
2: Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Even though Bob Bossy is like a well-off man. He's still very scuzzy. He has the perfect 70s actor face. And I miss faces like that in films.
1: Yeah these people who are, like, relatively young but still look very weathered. I mean, yeah. I, I can't I can't claim to know how old Roy Scheider <laughs> was in this movie, but I bet... No I mean, idea. Like at least, there's probably, like, a 10-year difference between how he was and, like, what his face looked like. Yeah. But it <laughs> is kind of a, you know, it's especially shocking to see him in something like this if you only know him from something like Jaws, where he is kind of, mm-hmm. like, this, you know, beleaguered hero, law enforcement. Um, I, I hesitate to say he yeah, has, like, a clean hero face. But he look, kind mm-hmm. of looks like your dad. It kind of looks like anyone's just yeah, the, a exactly bad. That. a looks kind of the same here, except he's playing like this horrific Tim basically who has yeah. no remorse or cat that like, looks at it as the extra yeah. business, like whatever, like who cares? Paul girls die all the time, whatever. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. And
1: it's really, really shocking, especially if you only know him from like some of the bigger stuff. This is yeah,
2: exactly. well worth
1: checking out of just to kind of have that cognitive dissonance of like, wait a minute why do i hate him so much now
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's exactly i think he's such he i think i can validly say that he's an underrated actor like most of us if you are into film know roy Scheider from whatever and even if you're not super into film you would have likely seen jaws so you'd recognize his face but we don't talk about you know how great of an actor he is because this man was in a lot of great films i think we talk about jaws we talk about all that jazz and some people talk about Sorcerer and whatnot, but uh I recently watched him in a movie called The Seven Ups, which is like a mob story. He plays a cop in that too, but he's like a, a gritty cop, you know. He's yeah. Uh, and he's great. He's just a great actor and he's great in this. And he's a great contrast to the other two main actors in this. So before we get to more of Jane Fonda, we were talking about Sutherland and how he kind of takes a backseat in this, but I think He's purposely taking a back seat. And I think that's a service to how great of an actor he is, where he's like, I don't need to be the showy one. And he's still making a mark in this film. I think he's a great in this movie. He really makes you believe that he's like this small town guy. And we've all seen him in like a million movies. Like this man was really in a lot of movies. He's played so many characters. And yet you really believe in what he's putting out in this. What did you like about or not like about Sutherland's performance? Well.
1: My opinion on Sutherland's performance is one of the things that greatly improved from the first viewing to the second viewing. It's not like I never mm-hmm. did. It's not like I disliked him in the first time I saw it. It just sort of like this non-factor because it's Shane Fonda's. Shit. Yeah. To the mm-hmm. point where I almost wonder if um this thought crossed my mind making Clute the title character is almost like a subversion, whether intentional or unintentional. Like you think, oh, this is gonna be like Bullet or Spencer. It's yeah. Cute. And it's not really it's not really Clute story. And I didn't know. I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that at all. Regardless, um, Sutherland himself, I think he's great. He doesn't have a whole lot of meat to his role, like not a whole lot of. I don't, he barely talks. Yeah, he barely barely talks. Um, but I also think that makes him in the trickier half of this two part like tandem act that uh, he and Jane Fonda are in because he has less. He kind of has to do more i don't know if that makes any sense but you know jane fonda gets these long monologues and these great showcase scenes and we're going to give her her flowers here in a second don't any of you worry but i think sutherland (laughs) i think really really shines in kind of a lesser role and i think you really kind of buy again you mentioned that you kind of buy that he's like this small town detective who's like really out of his element and maybe does not even know what he's doing you're not You're not really confident mm-hmm. that he, this case is going to get solved. Not that he's incompetent, but just, I don't know. We talked about like Breed not necessarily knowing what she's getting herself into. I'm not sure Clute knows what he's getting himself into for most of the movie. Mm-hmm. And the fact that he gets like the hero moment at the end feels really earned because you're like, thank God. <laughs> I didn't know he was yeah. capable of that. And that's all Sutherland. It's especially shocking to see like this very like buttoned up, repressed kind of character who where you can only guess like what are you even into like what do you like like the whole thing of like yeah what do you want me to do to you mm-hmm. um it started coming off of something like Nash which is like all charisma he's all very like laid back and like who cares and like everything was like I'm, I'm like a cool guy and this is like the year yeah. after and it's just very like buttoned up it really mm-hmm. shows he had a lot of range has i think he's still with us right yeah incredible
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, he has a lot of range. Now that you yeah. put it
0: out there, who knows. I know. I got a new story
1: tomorrow. He's going to die like God. the day before this comes out, and I'm going to feel like <laughs> oh a God. jerk.
0: Oh, God. Uh, fingers crossed, hopefully uh, not. I mean, yeah. no, I, I agree with everything you said, even with him earning that kind of final moment. It's funny because they set it up at the very beginning where they're introducing his character, and they have that whole talk, and they ask him, have you ever done like a missing person's investigation is like no but they still think he's a good person for this job so you're like okay this is his first time doing it so who knows but also like don't be disappointed if he doesn't succeed (laughs) eventually (laughs) you're right yeah i I think he's he's great and he is a great actor and i think he does what he needs to in this film without a an actor who is an actor's actor like him is why it works as opposed to being like well, I think I need to do more with this role because I'm getting shown up by James Fonda, who deserves is... to have the show here. But he's like, no, I'll sit back and relax, you know, yeah. and I'll go home.
1: Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he comes off just as well, secretly. I mean,
0: mm-hmm.
1: I think I think that takes a lot of confidence as a performer. Uh, mm-hmm. It's admirable.
0: Exactly. Hey, that's, that's my style of actor. One who Absolutely. seems like they're just clocking in for the day. <laughs> <laughs>
1: One take, I'm getting out of here. Yeah.
0: <laughs> all right. Got to go home for dinner. Um, Jane Fonda, though. I'm a fan of the Fonda family. Like, uh, I love sure. Fonda. I love Jane Fonda. Peter Fonda is cool too. Bridget mm-hmm. Fonda, but Jane Fonda is great. <laughs> yeah. She's great in this movie. As you said, it's her movie and she earns it and she deserves any and all accolades that she got. There's just so many moments. Not even just her delivering those dialogues in a way that you just feel like she is this person and you're listening in on this, but her facial expressions, they're not over the top, but they seem so real as though she's actually experiencing them in that moment. and the horror and terror, even when she's listening to that tape. And she starts getting sad thinking of her friend as she hearing her voice. and then as the friend starts screaming because she's literally being murdered, like the terror. And she could have been over the top screaming or like loudly crying. She's silently crying. I think that's what worked in this. It's just the understated, but like very powerful performance from her. So yeah, your thoughts on Fonda?
1: I mean, I completely agree. It's funny too, because like this was like not... Let me back up a little bit. Jane Fonda is kind of an interesting figure to even analyze as an actual performer like doing like acting mm-hmm. right because you know she's kind of like this larger than life figure even to this day where you almost know her yeah. more as like a personality and then like someone who was in movies she was in a lot of movies and she's won mm-hmm. i think at least i think she won two oscars right I think
0: she's won two and
1: you know this was kind of coming off of a lot of the uh anti- war stuff that got her in trouble and you still can't bring up her name to people of a certain age uh well you could but it's a dice roll you know
2: yeah
1: (laughs) not getting any of that (laughs) but this is like the year or two after that to the point where i think they kind of used her notoriety as kind of Mm -hmm. part of the advertising a little bit and um i think you can kind of at least i kind of sensed her kind of discovering something about herself as the movie is happening like in these scenes i think she's almost realizing like i can do this because another famous thing about jane fonda was that she turned it down initially. she's yeah. like i'm not the person for this you should get faye dunaway who mm-hmm. would have been great you know yes. in the alternate universe this would it would have been great but there's something really almost charming It almost like you can see her gain confidence like in the middle of scenes going like oh my god i actually can i'm actually up for this and like i can do this and Look, it all paid off. And I'm glad that Paculus sucked to his gun, but I'm glad she ended up doing it because she's ultimately what you remember about the movie. There's a reason why a lot of these things were sitting here going like, I remembered this afterward. I didn't remember this scene. Almost none of those things involved Jane Fonda. I remembered yeah. all those scenes from the first viewing. And, uh, you know, she brings a lot of dignity to a kind of a character that can be portrayed pretty scuzzily in a world that is mm-hmm. portrayed pretty scuzzily. She brings a lot of dignity to what could have been like a stock role i mean i can't imagine yeah. in lesser hands what this could have looked like it could have been almost exploitative but and said she mm-hmm. she takes the movie uh, roger ebert in his review i think said this should have been called Bree. i think a lot yep. of people would agree with him on that she's great I, I i barely know what to say it speaks for itself
0: i think it does and i agree with all of that and and i, I forgot to mention because you had asked about you know thoughts on it being called Clute, because i know that's like a big thing of people like why is it called Clute when it's not his story but it also is because it's his investigation but we're following brie and i think it just ties into that observation watching thing of like it's Clute watching all of this unfold and i think i still i think clute is a better name <laughs> it, it, it makes for the it's, better it's title. memorable you would not, no. yeah,
1: you don't forget a title like that. Like what who comes no. up with a name like Clute? <laughs> like it's 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 great.
0: Yeah, it's not a common name. So I, I can't I'm not gonna be upset about the title. But yeah, no. I, think I think the title's the performance great. is great all around. Cinematography great all around. And we touched upon the story. Are there any last words, anything that we haven't covered before we move to the last segment? Yeah,
1: I'm gonna look at my notes real quick. I think we covered mm-hmm. A good majority of what i wanted to bring up um mm-hmm. <laughs> another performance i thought was a uh, very very brief but i thought she stole the show in her one scene was gene stapleton in a non edith yeah. bunker role as a <laughs> mr goldfarb secretary um
0: yeah i, I admit to giggling
1: at that yeah again what is there to say the legend yeah gene stapleton i also
0: i was just like i wonder if that's how i sound at work <laughs> just, you know harping on people
1: mr goldfarb <laughs> yeah
0: yeah I was like, uh, can you that's not where that goes. Yeah, can you're doing you... it
1: wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Uh
0: I loved her <laughs> outfit. It was like the the yellow on yellow coat. Yeah. I was like, oh wow, that, that's that's at the time. Love that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Iconic,
1: as the kids would say. Yes.
0: Truly. Truly. Absolutely. I was like, wow, <laughs> that's a look. And I I live for it. Absolutely. Well, that was those clues. I think we, we did a, a great job capturing Gordon Willis's imprint on the film while also talking about the story and the acting but i'm ready to move to the last segment of the show which is called end credits and we'll still tie in the Clute because we're going to be talking about gordon willis and we pair this with but the first question is gordon willis focused so you don't have to have seen all of his stuff but i know that you've seen a good handful of it but if someone's coming to you and they're like I'm kind of more interested in looking at film through the lens of cinematography. I have heard of Gordon Willis. I haven't seen any of the films he's worked on. Where should I start? What's the film you're recommending to them and what's the reasoning behind it?
1: Yeah, no, I've been thinking about this question a lot because to some degree in this hypothetical world where it's like, you really not seen any Gordon Willis yeah. shot films. It's like, you almost have to go like, you gotta knock go out the Godfather or like the Godfather mm-hmm. Part or even Annie Hall, like he's very like, yeah, I don't mean. I, I mean this exactly how I say it. Like these more populist movies, they are intuitive. They are crowd pleasers in their own ways, and like you just got to do it. But if you're looking to kind of go, I want to know more about Gordon Willis, *The Prince of Darkness*. I might point them to this. I don't know. Yeah. Again, I don't. That's, I can't guarantee they're gonna dig it right away. But if you really want to know more about like his use of shadows and the way that like it's so interesting that. I didn't know that about him kind mm-hmm. of wanting to be an actor before moving to cinematography. I think that that is a real benefit because like, I do think his camera work does boost performances. So if you want to see all that, you might, you mm-hmm. might want to go with clue. Why not? Yeah,
0: that's fair. That That's mm-hmm. a great reason why they would want to, uh, why you'd recommend any of those movies. It's tricky. This question, especially if I'm with the cinematographers, because The films they work on can be so different as opposed to with directors. You can usually find a linear between. I usually try it. It depends on the person, obviously. Some people are like, I know you and what you're going to like, so I'm going to recommend the film that you like. And sometimes if it's like a neutral thing, I don't know you that well, or I don't know what you're going to gravitate towards. I try and be like, okay, what's going to show you exactly what they have to offer and then allow you to branch off? So with this one, I kind of cheated and I gave two starters only because I'm like, okay, if you want to give the black and white version of him, I'm going to go Manhattan. This is what sure. how he shoots his black and white and the shadows there. And then if we're going color, Prince of Darkness, this would be a great one. But then I'm like, if you genuinely have not seen any Gordon Willis, I'd have to be like, you have to watch The Godfather. Not only just for his work, but you have to watch The Godfather. Um, but I think it <laughs> What really are you doing? Just, yeah. yeah it's, it, there's so many people who have put their imprint on that film, but Gordon Willis' photography is why you get those shots that we all know you know uh so i i'd recommend those two to be like hey if you like this then i think you've got a good road ahead of you of <laughs> other great films to watch so, my
1: sincere hope <laughs> my sincere hope for your gordon willis month is that someone has the guts to say the money pit for this question
0: <laughs> <laughs> i hope so sometimes you get yeah. someone who's like yeah let's do it i'm like you know what respect <laughs> hey
1: jump jump in i love it <laughs> exactly
0: <laughs> the second and last question of the night is the double bill so if you're going to pair this film with another film and you can give me more than one because you have different reasons for it what's the pairing and what's the thought process behind the pairing is it thematic is it visually is it decade and so on
1: yeah so i, I mean I, I think the uh the very obvious thing to think of would be to pair it with something else in the uh, paranoia trilogy Mm -hmm. that being either the parallax to you or all the president's men yeah i didn't go that direction i kind of have kind of an on the nose pick and then kind of like a wild swing it's just a movie i kept Mm -hmm. thinking about while watching this i don't know how much they really connect but i just put it out there the um Mm -hmm. uh, the obvious uh the obvious double play would be uh tearing it with the conversation Uh, Another great another great 70s paranoia thriller probably the best one also kind of Mm-hmm. very very analog cassette <laughs> yeah audio based but the movie that's can i keep going to mind let me know what you think of this was uh, a okay. 1967's wait until dark
0: oh yeah okay
1: the, the terence young film uh starring mm-hmm. uh, yeah uh, audrey hepburn and a very young very creepy alan arkin just in the oh, sense yeah. of like a woman being encroached upon and trying to like find power where there is none to be had. That is kind of like the three line. I don't know if they actually watch those movies yeah. back to back, if that would come, but that's what I thought of, of just like a woman in a space that is being invaded. What does she do?
0: Yeah. I love that. I love, I feel like when I make a double bill, sometimes you want to be more direct so like, these are basically two of the same movies done differently ish, or you're like, I'm going to pick a specific thematic element of the film and pair it that way so i love that wait until dark i hadn't even thought of i think that'd make a great double bill they're both great movies
1: yeah absolutely yeah i one of the one of the great thrillers of its decade paired with another great thriller of its decade if anyone wants to watch an audrey Hepburn movie that isn't one of like the big hits like Mm -hmm. sabrina or you know funny face wait until dark absolutely Mm -hmm.
0: she's great in that the pairings that i went with i picked a couple for the first pairing, I kind of went on the paranoid sort of thriller, trying to figure out what's going on, spy-esque thing. And so I picked Mirage. Uh, this is an Edward Dmytryk film from 1965 with Gregory Peck. And he's lost his memory, as one does in those type of movies, and he's trying to figure out... What's the deal? How did I get here? And he's essentially the spy of figuring out his own life, but it's very much tied to nuclear war also in the background, which sounds like it's overloaded with a lot of stuff, but it's really well done. It's really well shot. And Gregory Peck is a little bit older at this point, but he really pulls it off. So Mirage is a great one. And then the other one I thought of just because... We've got the 70s, and this one's a little bit more serious. If you kind of want a little bit more fun, surveillance-esque movie, I was like, you got to do Body Double, Brian De Palma. I could go over a Window. I could go a million other
1: sure. surveillance
0: ones, but I'm always going to go Brian De Palma. So if you want to pair it with something that's a little lighter, although still heavy, but it's the 80s, so mm-hmm. there's a little bit more glitz and flash. So those would be my two pairings for this one.
1: Yeah, yeah, Mir- yeah, Mirage. I hadn't even heard of. It sounds great. A Gregory Peck movie that I haven't seen. Not always. It's it's like that always just inst- like an instant, instant, Got to do it. I have to confess, Body Double is one of my biggest blind spots currently. It's it's a movie that I should it. have seen by now. You know,
0: I'm jealous. I've I got to do. It. I know. First time. <laughs>
1: I'll let you know. So. I'll let you know how it goes.
0: <laughs> yeah, we were talking about Greg earlier. Greg and I are both Body Double stands, so you definitely have to let us both know what you think of it you know i will (laughs) (laughs) thanks so much though ryan for joining me for clute i had a great time it was a great discussion talking about gordon willis
1: yeah i had a great time as well uh it was a blast to be on thank you for thinking of me and uh yeah (laughs) clute great film
0: seeing faces the movies is an official podcast of the royal film club it's hosted and edited by felicia moroni with intro music by lamar walker If you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesandmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesmovies at gmail.com. While you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. And stay tuned for our next episode on The Landlord.